Good morning, Servants Church. So glad you guys could be with us, whether you're watching this uh, at 10.30 on Sunday morning or sometime later. We're super glad that you joined us to worship Jesus. And I'll give a message, and after that, we'll, we'll go to the Lord's table together to remember what He's done for us, a time of communing with our Savior. So if you haven't got those elements prepared, please go and do so. But what we want to do is we want to turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 14 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to look at verse 14 through the end of the chapter. So if you have a Bible or electronic device where you can find Luke 4, it's really going to be helpful for you to follow along what we're studying. Luke chapter 4. And then I want to pray, and then we'll get into it together. Father, we thank you so much that you love us so much and that your desire is to speak to us. Because when you speak, you create life, Lord. You, you, you create when there's nothing, you create something. That's what happens when you speak. And we pray, Father, that as we hear your word, your Holy Spirit would speak and you would bring faith where there isn't faith and you would bring uh, healing where there hasn't been healing, Lord, and you would bring uh, wholeness where there needs to be wholeness and that we would be able to just press on in our lives looking to you. Lord, use this time in your word to, to prove to us afresh that Jesus indeed is our King and he's worthy to be trusted. Do this, we pray in his name. Amen. So we're looking at verse uh, 14 of chapter 4 through the end of the chapter. But really we're beginning a new section in the Gospel of Luke. From chapter 4, verse 14, all the way through chapter 9, verse 51, is the second main section of Luke's Gospel. And in this section, Luke focuses on Jesus' ministry in the area of Galilee. And what we see in, this, in these texts that we're, we have, there, these scriptures that we have today, is we see really Luke framing what Jesus' ministry is about and wanting to show the readers, show the people that first read this, and, and the Holy Spirit wants us to know this too, that what Jesus did, what his ministry was about, proved to us that he was indeed God's chosen king. And so let's pick it up at verse 14 and see these four characteristics that identify Jesus as Messiah through his ministry. Verse 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now, when it says he returned, where did he return from? If you remember from, from last time we were in Luke's gospel, how, how Jesus has basically returned from this time of being tempted by the enemy. But actually what's happened is not only was he tempted in the wilderness by the devil, but actually a whole year of ministry has passed. And Luke is wanting to fast forward to the aspects of Jesus' ministry that clearly identify him as God's chosen king. And so when we fast forward here, Luke also wants us to see, as one of his main themes in his gospel is, is that Jesus does what he does by the power of God's Holy Spirit. That he's doing this ministry in the power of the Spirit, and specifically he wants to highlight here that Jesus was teaching in the synagogues by the power of the Spirit and was being glorified or honored by all who heard him. Now, we're going to come back to the power of Jesus' teaching in just a minute. But it's important for us to see that this is what's going on. That as Jesus ministers over this year, the public expectations that he might be the Messiah are increasing. More and more and more, people are wondering, who is this Jesus guy, this rabbi from Nazareth? 
And so what, what happens is we pick it up in verse 16, and Jesus goes back to his hometown. It says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now, this is not Jesus kind of going, ooh, ooh, I want to read. Often what would happen was when there was a, a, a popular rabbi who came to the synagogue or someone who was, who was known in that community, they were asked, they would ask several volunteers to read from the scripture as part of their liturgy, as part of their service. So they probably recognized who Jesus was, knew his reputation was growing, and said, hey, come read. And so he stands up to read. Verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolls the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." Now, where Jesus reads here is actually in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, or at least the first part of verse 2. And what's interesting about this is that this section of Scripture from Isaiah 61 is, is specifically about the Messiah's ministry. Now, did Jesus ask to read that? Probably not. Was this what was kind of randomly handed to him? No, probably not. This was probably the Scripture that was the next Scripture to be read in turn in that synagogue. But it's, it's amazing to me that the Lord sets us up so perfect that when Jesus goes to speak and goes to read the text there, what happens is he reads that which applies directly to him. Now also in the kind of order of service in synagogues, what they would do is after they would read some of the law and then hear some of the prophets, then the person who read the prophet would kind of maybe say something about it. They would give a short exposition of it. And so what we have here is, is this chunk of scripture specifically about the Messiah's ministry and Jesus is going to personally apply this to himself. Now, now here's what's amazing. When he, when he says, uh, that when he reads the scripture from Isaiah about the Messiah's ministry, this last phrase that we see in verse 19, the proclaim the year of the Lord or the Lord's favor, is, it's a reference to what the book of Leviticus calls the year of Jubilee. Now, I want to read to you just one section. You can read all of Le Leviticus chapter 25 if you haven't already this morning. And you can see what this, this is about. But just listen to this one verse. It says, And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. And so the Old Testament law, the Levitical law, commanded, God commanded that every 50th year, all debts that were owed to other people in Israel, all those debts were canceled. And that anyone who was an adventured servant, someone who was uh, kind of a, a servant by or a slave by, uh, by hire for a certain time, all those had to be turned, had to be set free, all slaves set free. Can you imagine can you imagine how amazing it would be to be in a time when all debts were forgiven and all slaves were set free? Now, we, we, we kind of looking at Israel's history, they never really seemed to follow this particular command. But the rabbis did believe that this command, and specifically what Isaiah was talking about, was a promise that one day when Messiah would come, he would bring these things to pass. 
Now, as we go through Luke's gospel, we're going to see how, how Jesus fulfills this idea of proclaiming the good news to the poor and uh, proclaiming liberty to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, setting at liberty those who are oppressed. We're going to see that a little bit in this section, but even more so as we go through the rest of this section uh, in, the, in the gospel of Luke. But suffice it to say for now, it's important that we see he's personalizing this to himself. Now, what happens? We get to verse uh, 20 and it says, He rolls up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and all the eyes of, this, uh, of all, all uh, I'm sorry, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he says to them, or it says of him, and all spoke well of him, and they marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth, and they said, is this not Joseph's son? Now, now please get what's going on here. As Jesus applies the scripture to himself and says, today you are seeing the Messiah in your presence, they know exactly what they're saying. These people who saw Jesus grow up, in fact, I can imagine the scene as Jesus stands up, they're, they, 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 they must be thinking there, the people of Nazareth going, Joseph and Mary must be so proud. How, what a great rabbi he's become. He was a good carpenter too, you know. And they're all kind of whispering to each other how great this is. And then he reads the scripture and they go, wow, doesn't he read so well? Oh, Mary, your son, he reads so well. And everyone's excited that the, whole, that the, the, the small town boy has come back and he's done well for himself. Until he says, today, this has been fulfilled in your presence. Until he claims to be Messiah. And then they're all, wow, well, he, he speaks amazing, but this is Joe and Mary's kid. How could this possibly be the Messiah? The reason this is important is because one of the first things that Luke wants to highlight to us about Jesus' ministry, that his ministry was about him claiming to be the prophesied Messiah. He claimed to be God's chosen king. This is important. It's important because, as the, the, the great Christian thinker C.S. Lewis said, if Jesus, if we, if we look at the scripture, we have to come to one of three conclusions. Either he's a liar... Or he's a lunatic, or he is Lord. He is God's chosen king. He claimed to be this. Now, what happens next? Verse 23. And Jesus says to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. Now, now here's what is happening here. Jesus is predicting that these people will reject him. Now we get a sense, of course, from the text. Luke wants us to see that they're wondering, could this actually be the Messiah? But then Jesus steps it up a bit and he says, you know what? You guys are going to reject me. You're not going to accept me as the Messiah. You're not going to accept me as that prophet that was meant to be the second Moses, so to speak. The prophet that Moses prophesied about. You're not going to expect me to be, or you're not going to receive me to be that. He's predicting their rejection. And then he takes it a bit further. He doesn't just predict that they will reject him. That they will say, hey, why don't you do these great works here that you did in Capernaum. But he's going, to, he's going to give them now two warnings from their history, from Israel's history, that says, look, you guys are going to make the same mistakes. Check out the warnings. In verse 25, Jesus says, But in truth I tell you that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, 
when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them except to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, a woman to a woman who was a widow. Now, what, what he's saying here is he's using this illustration from the, uh, the ministry of one of the most famous, of the, the, uh, the most famous prophet in the history of Israel, Elijah. That in this great time of uh, famine, Elijah the prophet wasn't sent to anybody in, in Israel, but he was sent to a Gentile widow in this place called Zarephath. Then he gives another, uh, another example. Just sometime after Elijah came Elisha, who kind of took over his prophetic ministry. And what happens when there's a time when there's many lepers in Israel, God doesn't send uh, Elisha to do a miracle with those lepers. He sends them to a Gentile. In fact, the captain of the army of Syria, Naaman. And Naaman is the one that's healed. The reason he's saying this is that the warning he's wanting to give to these Nazarite Jews is this. He's saying, listen, you're going to reject me. And I need to warn you that, you know, even when God sends his prophets, if Israel, his people, is unbelieving, he'll send them to the, to the Gentiles. In a sense, he's wanting to prepare them that his ministry isn't going to be just to Israel, but also to the Gentiles. But also he's warning them. He's warning them that, listen, just because you know, you think you know me, don't think you know me. Don't think you can, you're actually recognizing me as, as I am. Because it's been in your history to reject those that God sends. Now what happens? They're obviously not too happy about what Jesus is saying to them. So we see in verse 28, it says, When they heard these things, uh, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Do you see what's happening here? They're so angry uh, about him confronting their unbelief that they want to kill him. It's interesting, isn't it? Because Jesus has said to them, hey, you're surely going to say to me, hey, do the miracles here that you did in Capernaum. These people won't believe in Jesus unless he does the miracles that they want him to do. But here's what's ironic. When they go to kill him, he does a miracle. What happens? They're going to throw him off the cliff. Obviously, they, they were strong enough to carry Jesus, the man Jesus, all the way out of town and get ready to throw him off the cliff. But all of a sudden, he passes through their midst and he went away. Now, we don't know what happened. Jesus basically, he overrules their attempt to kill him. He's showing to them, listen, as God's chosen king, it's not up to them when he dies. He's on the Lord's time. But this also brings up a really important characteristic of the Messiah. The Messiah would confront the unbelief of his own people. This is what Jesus is doing. He's confronting unbelief. Now, before we go on to the last two things that characterize Jesus' ministry that pointed to his identity, let's, let's take some time to respond. Because here's a situation that we have, okay? Here Jesus is clearly claiming to be the prophesied Messiah, that God's chosen king, the one that had been talked about throughout the Old Testament. And here is clearly doing what the Messiah would do. He's confronting Israel about their unbelief in the God who's made covenant with them. And here's the thing that we need to understand. Whether or not you choose to believe in Jesus does not change who he is. Your faith, my faith, does not make Jesus Lord. He just is. 
My unbelief, your unbelief, does not mean that Jesus is no longer God's chosen king. He still is. This is important for us to understand. Because the Jesus that Luke presents in his gospel, the Jesus that we know is worth following, is who he is, not because we make him so, but because he is so. And Jesus is warning, he's giving some strict warnings here about their unbelief. He's confronting them in belief, not because he's being harsh, but because he loves them. He loves them, and he wants them to come into an authentic relationship with God through him. And this is where I think we need to think about how we can respond to this. Many of you who watch this grew up in some sort of religious home. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home and you're kind of maybe coming back to church by just watching online. Or, or maybe you grew up even at Servants Church and you kind of go, yeah, I've heard John say these kinds of things for years and years and years. Or, or, or maybe you grew up in another church and you're just listening or you just started coming to Servants. And, and here's the thing, you can grow up as a Christian, grow up hearing about who Jesus is and still not trust him, still not believe he is who he is. We need to be aware of our propensity as human beings to not believe God. Maybe what it is is that you grew up in a home that wasn't Christian. Maybe you grew up Jewish. And maybe what's happening is, is that you're interested in this Jesus who was, that, that these Christians say was Messiah. Or maybe you grew up Muslim. Maybe you're, you've, come, uh, you've come here from this country or you've, you've been grown up in this country as a Muslim and you're wondering what does Jesus actually mean? What do Christians actually believe in Jesus? And here's what I want to encourage you. Don't let your religious history keep you from seeing who Jesus is. If you grew up in the church, don't let the hypocrisy of other Christians keep you from seeing who Jesus is. If you didn't grow up in the church and you grew up in some other religion, don't let those other religions keep you from seeing who Jesus is, who Luke is clearly presenting him to be, God's chosen king. Now, let's pick it back up in verse 31. It says, but Jesus went down to Capernaum, the city, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, notice, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had, a, uh, had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! Ah, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed. What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports went about him, went out into every place in the surrounding region. Now, I want a section because I want you to get the big picture of why Luke is telling this story in this place. He, he wants us to see that Jesus here and his authority, the authority that he demonstrates, his authority is expressed through his word. That's why the whole section starts off with the fact that Jesus was teaching in the power of the Spirit and people were blown away. 
Jesus expresses authority through his word. Now, his word, listen, doesn't create authority. There's a whole kind of bad teaching within Christian circles about somehow our words have power. Our words have no power because we don't have any power naturally. Our words have little power, at least not power to create. But Jesus, when he says something, things change. Realities change. He has power. And I love, I, I don't want to miss, I don't want us to miss the fact that the emphasis that, that Luke is bringing here is not on just the, the specific miracle of casting out a demon. He wants us to see that it's just his authoritative spoken word that has the power. Now there's something though I, I don't want us to also miss. A couple things about the miracle itself. It says here, first and foremost, that, that Luke tells us in verse 32 that when he taught, he taught with authority. His words possess authority. The teachers of that day, the rabbis of that day, they would basically give their opinions about other people's opinions about the Scripture. And that's not bad by itself. There's something really wrong with that. But Jesus didn't teach like that. He didn't just teach like a good rabbi. He taught as if what he says goes with absolute authority. He wasn't teaching opinions of opinions, but truth. But also, I want you to notice in verse 35, when he does cast the demon out of this person, what, what, what Luke tells us, it's, it's so important not to miss this. It says that Jesus rebukes the, the, the demon, saying, the demon came out of him, having done him no harm. In other words, listen, Jesus was able, with his authority, to destroy evil without destroying the person. That's great news. It's great news because though most of us who are listening to this aren't demon-possessed, probably none of us are, the truth is we get harassed by the enemy and lied to all the time. And we ourselves do evil. There's something broken about us. And yet Jesus can destroy that evil within us. He can transform us without ourselves being destroyed. It's amazing to think about. But Luke wants us to see how Jesus demonstrates God's authority over demons and disease. One, he actually, uh, that authority, he expresses that through his word. But also, he wants us to see that his authority is exercised for the benefit of anyone who will listen, anyone who will receive. Look at verse 38. And Jesus arose, and he left the synagogue, and he entered Simon's house. That's Peter the fisherman. We'll talk about him more next week. And now Simon's mother-in-law was high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And Jesus stood over her, and he rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she arose, she rose and began to serve them. I love this. I love this because they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, please help. You know, here's, here's Peter, Simon Peter may be on the verge of becoming a disciple of Jesus, or maybe he's already become a disciple of Jesus at this point. But they, when a disciple comes and says, help my mother-in-law, when he does this, Jesus says, yeah, I'll do it. And he helps this woman. He heals this woman to the point that she's able to get up right away and begin to make dinner for everybody. But also we read that in verse 40. And when the sun was setting, all those who had any, uh, who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. The rumor quickly gets out that Jesus has healed uh, um, uh, Simon's mother-in-law, this was probably the Sabbath day. And so they wait till the Sabbath is over because you can't carry the sick on the Sabbath day. And as soon as the sun goes down, the Sabbath is over. So what do they do? They carry all their sick. And, 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 and Luke tells us clearly that Jesus says yes to any and all who came. He touched them and he healed them. 
Now, th this is important because Luke wants us to see that Jesus is willing to do this for anybody. We, we, saw this, we talked about this in the very beginning of this gospel, that a major theme of Luke's gospel is that it's the gospel for everybody. Not just the Jew, but the Jew and the Gentile. Not just the rich, but the rich and the poor. Not just the beautiful, but the homely and the broken. All of us. Jesus came for all of us, for any who will come to him. And we read in verse 41 that actually as he's doing these things, that, that many Jesus were coming out, or demons were coming out of many people, and they're crying out, you are the son of God. But what does he say no to? He says, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Isn't this interesting? This is not Jesus denying he was the Christ. Luke's being clear that no, he knew he was the Christ. He's not denying that he's God's chosen king. He just doesn't want the demonic advertising. Again, he's as God's chosen king, as the one who has God's authority in God's world, in God's kingdom, he does things in his own time, in his own way. The point is, Luke wants us to see, as the Messiah, he does what the Messiah would do, he demonstrates God's authority over demons and disease. Lastly, the last couple of verses, verse 42. And when it was day, he departed, and he went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. So Jesus is doing this great ministry in Capernaum. Capernaum would, as we'll see, end up being kind of his home base. But, but with this ministry going on, the next day what happens? He's tired. He's going to go off and seek the Lord, seek some time with his father. But they, they find him and they say, you have to stay here. This is so great. You're, you're doing so many powerful things, and we want this power you bring. We want the healings you bring. We want the messages you bring. We want all the things that come with you. But Jesus says to them, verse 43, he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this Purpose, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now, here's what's interesting. These guys wanted the power that Jesus brings, all the, you might say, the benefits of his Messiahship. But Jesus didn't give people what they wanted. He gave them what they needed. He said, you know, it wasn't that he was like against helping them or against uh, uh, doing, using his authority and power to bless them. That's why he came. But listen, he didn't come to just meet what their dictates were. He came to do what they needed. See, everyone needs the truth that Jesus is. Here's what I mean by that. Real famous verse, many of you guys know this verse, John chapter 14, where Jesus says to Philip, he's talking to all his disciples, but he addresses Philip specifically, and he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus revealed himself as the exclusive revelation, the final and exclusive revelation of who God is and the way we can have a right relationship with him. When it says the way, the truth, and the life, the definite article, the, is explicit in the original language. 
Like when we say he's the way, the truth, the life. See, what Jesus showed himself to be was, was the Messiah, God's chosen king. And he calls us to trust him with that. So let's respond to this before we take the time to remember the Lord in communion. Let's respond to this. I want you to think about someone right now that you feel like you can trust. If you've been with us for a while, we've done a similar exercise before, but it's an important exercise. Think about someone you trust. Think about your different relationships. It could be a family member. It could be a friend. It could be a teacher. It could be a coworker. It could have been a coach or, a, uh, or someone like that. But who do you feel like you really trust? And, and ask yourself, what made that person trustworthy? Was it their expertise? Was it their listening skills, their empathy? Was it their lifestyle? What was it about that person? What is it about that person that makes you feel like I can trust them? What is it? And then thinking about what it is that causes you to, or makes you want to trust that person, what makes that person trustworthy, I'm going to ask you a serious question. Even, even, even just barely dipping into Jesus' ministry and what that tells us about the fact that he's God's chosen king, even just going this far, can you think of a good reason not to trust Jesus? Why you wouldn't put your faith in him? Now, if you think, yeah, I got a reason, man. Here's why I don't think I'm ready to trust Jesus. Do me a favor, put it in an email and send it to us. We really want to hear. We really want to know. Maybe we can address the thing that's causing you to doubt or not want to put your faith in him. But here's the thing we need to understand. We can only benefit from this authority that Jesus shows. From the, the, we can only benefit from him as God's chosen king if we're willing to trust him. If we're willing to put our faith in him. If you are watching this and you have not yet put your faith in Jesus, you haven't addressed him as this living savior, you haven't related to him as God's chosen king, having authority over all things, including your life. If you haven't understood or believed that when he died on the cross, he paid for your sins, if you haven't seen him as resurrected from the dead, not as just a historical figure, but as a living savior, if that hasn't happened yet, why not? What's keeping you from crying out to him right now? from saying, Jesus, I believe what Luke's gospel says about you. From saying something like, Jesus, I believe that you are God's chosen king and that your ministry proves it. And I want you to be king over my life and to save me. What's keeping you from praying to God like that? I'm not talking about using those exact words. I'm talking about turning away from you ruling your own life and saying, Jesus, I want you to rule over mine. In just a second, we're going to take some crushed grape juice, some crushed grape and some broken unleavened bread because Jesus commanded us to use these elements to remember what he would do for us so that we could be in right relationship with God.
So we could remember a covenant, a promise based in love that he makes with us, a commitment he makes with us if we're willing to trust him. Maybe you don't have the elements with you as you're watching this and you're, you're scrambling for something. Don't worry about the elements right now. Just if you haven't cried out to Jesus to save you, I'm going to say, do it now. Kneel in your living room or in your bedroom. Humble yourself before God and say, God, save me. I believe you sent Jesus to be king. And I need you to rule over my life. If you've done that, make sure you also email us and let us know. We'd love to celebrate with you and even send you some stuff that might be helpful. But here's what we want to do right now. For those of us who believe, we trust that Jesus is God's chosen king, and we believe that when he was crucified, he, did so for, he was so for us. And we believe that he's risen from the dead, and because he's alive, we can trust him with our lives. Right now, we want to go to the Lord's table and remember him. This bit of unleavened bread, that is bread without yeast or leaven in it. It's unleavened because it represents, leaven in the scripture often represents sin. And Jesus was a sinless sacrifice. His sinless body was broken for us. And we use this bit of crushed Grape. That's exactly how wine is made. Grape, uh, uh, grapes are crushed. And the juice that comes out is what we partake with. And the reason Jesus had us do that is because, one of the reasons is because a crushed grape, that kind of crushing of grape, is a picture of God judging the world. And the good news is, is that when Jesus died for us, he took God's judgment for us on himself. In a very real way, on the cross, God absorbed his own judgment against us. And so he told us to remember by eating this unleavened bread and this, drinking this crushed grape, to remember that the perfect was sacrificed for us who are imperfect so that we could know that we're forgiven and we could know that we belong to him and that we could learn to trust him. It's something for us to give thanks. It's, it's, it's a reason for us to celebrate. It's the reason we can find peace in the worst circumstance. So if you have your elements, let's together as one people remember what Jesus has done for us. So in his name, let's partake. God bless you guys. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, we can't wait till we can meet in person, but we are so thankful that we have these options. 
If you had any of those questions or those reasons why you're not sure you can trust Jesus, seriously, send them to us. We'd love to address them. Maybe we'll do a Q&A live uh, on a Sunday morning. Uh, but also, if you uh, came to, to put your faith in Jesus today, either for the first time or you've come back to him after a long time, please let us know that too. We have a prayer meeting every Tuesday night. We want to pray for you and give thanks for you. So, so please let us know. God bless you guys. Hope to see you soon.